You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here. So glad that you could join me on a Thursday afternoon for another one of our live question and answer sessions. It is a good time here in Santa Barbara, California. The sun is shining, uh, kind of burned away a little bit of the clouds. And I see a squirrel walking by on a uh, power line just off to my side. He's out of sight now. But anyway, I'm glad to join you here on a Thursday afternoon. And I'm here to answer some questions and respond to comments. I certainly don't know everything. Good heavens. Nobody knows everything about the Bible or about God. But what I do know, I'm happy to share with you. The way we usually do it here on our weekly question and answer times is I begin with a lead question, something that has come in through social media, or maybe it's come in from uh, a comment on the YouTube channel. Whatever it is, uh, I respond to that first. Uh, let me just say again that I, I do invite you, if you have any interest, to go to my website, EnduringWord.com. I'm sure there's a link somewhere on my YouTube channel, EnduringWord.com. And there you'll find a lot of Bible resources from me, especially a written commentary on the entire Bible. It's available in English. It's available in Spanish. And in the New Testament, it's available in Arabic. And the New Testament is almost finished in Chinese. And then in several other languages, we have portions, a book here and a book there, including German, Tamil, Italian, Russian, uh, a few other books as well. So again, uh, glad that you could join me. Hope that you can use my online content. If it works for you, that makes me very happy. But let me get to my lead question here today. And it's a question that comes from Sasha. I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. Uh, it's spelled S-A-S-H-E, Sasha. And the question is this. It's a good question. Hi, Pastor David. Thank you for your question and answers. I'm currently reading Job. In Job 14, 12, and in other places, it seems that he doesn't believe in the afterlife. But in Job chapter 19, verse 25 and on, he speaks of seeing God. What did he believe? Many thanks, Sasha. Sasha, let me say, first of all, compliments to you on your reading the Bible and reading a book like Job, because there are some people who avoid books like that in the Bible, but we shouldn't avoid the book of Job. It has a lot to teach us. By the way, if you have trouble understanding a book like Job, you can go to my written commentary, but then I also have a uh, teaching verse by verse through the book of Job that you can take a look at. Okay. Anyway, back to the book of Job. You, you've read it and you have understood it well. Because you're exactly right, Sasha. In some places, Job speaks as if there is no afterlife and this life is all there is. There's other places in Job where he speaks with great confidence about the afterlife. And it's a very good question to say, what is going on with this? Well, Sasha, let me reply to you this way. First of all, yes, the Old Testament has what I would call a shadowy a cloudy understanding of life after death. The concept of life after death is not clear in the Old Testament. It is what I would call mixed. 
there's some passages that speak of there being no afterlife. There's other passages that speak of there being an afterlife. So again, sometimes in the Old Testament, there is doubt whether there is life after this life. And then again, other times there is confidence in the resurrection. Here's the point. Clearer revelation about the afterlife did not come until Jesus Christ and the writings of the New Testament. And this is specifically said to us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. So this idea that the Old Testament gives us a cloudy understanding of the afterlife, but the New Testament a much clearer vision of the afterlife, this is explained to us in the Bible itself. And I'll get to that in just a minute. First, let me deal with the specific passages, Sashay, that you mentioned. So let me read to you Job chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. These are examples of doubting the afterlife. Okay, ready? Here we go. As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Wow, that's pretty dark, isn't it? That's pretty bleak. Basically, man lies down and does not rise. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Now, this is one of several places in the book of Job reflecting this shadowy and uncertain understanding of the afterlife. Now, I don't have any problem saying that what Job said in Job chapter 14, verses 11 and 12, it was wrong. Now, it wasn't wrong that Job said it. Job truly said it. But Job was wrong in his understanding of the afterlife. And we can explain this, again, from the principle of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, where it says this, that Jesus Christ brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, the understanding of immortality was at best cloudy in the Old Testament, but it is much clearer in the New Testament. But for example, we can say that Jesus completely knew what he was talking about when he described hell and judgment, such as in Matthew chapter 25. Therefore, we rely on the New Testament for our understanding of the afterlife much more than the Old Testament. Now, we understand this does not take away in any way from the truth of the Bible in the book of Job. It's true that Job actually said this. It's true that Job actually believed it. But the truth of that statement must be evaluated according to the rest of the Bible. And check this out. Later on in the book of Job, God challenged and corrected Job's presumptuous statements about the afterlife. He reminded Job that he did not, in fact, know what life after death was like. You'll find that in Job chapter 38, verse 2, and in Job chapter 38, verse 17. Now, here, again, quoted by Sasha, here's another example of confidence in the afterlife. Job chapter 19, starting at verse 25. Job says this, 
For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Now notice this. Job boldly said, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job expected the destruction of his skin to be completed, yet at the same time, he had the confidence of faith to know that God would not hide himself forever and that in his flesh he would see God. That was the moment of Job's great comfort and restoration and vindication. And Job would have confidence that that day would come, even if it were to come when life on this earth was completely over. So Job's statement there, he's saying, I do believe in an afterlife. I know that in my flesh, I shall see God. You see, this is a wonderful reminder to us that the understanding in the Old Testament, for whatever reason, I don't know if I can give you an exact reason why God did not give a clear understanding of the afterlife, uh, in the Old Testament times, but he waited until the revelation of Jesus Christ to give that clearer understanding. I don't know if I can explain to you those reasons why, but the fact of it is clear enough. Job is so bold for himself that he says, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. This shines like a flash of faith in a dark background of despair. Job has a bold confidence that, that will completely frustrate Satan's idea that Job could be turned against God. No, he knows one day I will see God. This life is not all there is, and I can have some confidence. So Job goes back and forth. Sometimes he has great confidence in an afterlife, other times not. So again, this is the simple answer that we have before us. We see it in other places as well. You'll find several Psalms where there is a sober doubting, if I could say that, of there being an afterlife. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't bother us at all because we understand that simple principle that's given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, what is it, verse 20, that life and immortality have come to light through Jesus Christ. It just wasn't a confident understanding in the Old Testament. You know, in the New Testament, we have statements from people like the Apostle Paul, who said things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. And we don't have that same confident assertions, except in the occasional, I would call it almost a flash of revelation that explodes onto the scene in the Old Testament. Generally, it's a mixed bag. There are times when they seem to know it, and there's times that they don't. But again, as the New Testament tells us, life and immortality have come to light through Jesus Christ. And that is our rest. That is our hope that we know that there is an afterlife. Again, that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. I think before I said it was 1 Timothy, it's actually 2 Timothy chapter 1, 
verse 10 says again that Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. These people in the Old Testament, Job, David in the Psalms, they spoke according to the light that they had, but God gave more light in the New Testament. So I hope that helps you, Sashay. Glad I could uh, answer that question. I think it's a question that a lot of people have. And now let me take a look at our side chat and get to some of these. Oh, before I start the side chat, let me say something. Um, the last three months when we've really been in the midst of this global pandemic, here in the United States, um, it's getting better and things are getting more back to normal in people's daily life. I fully know that in other parts of the world, that's not the case. Our hearts grow out, go out now to our dear brothers and sisters and to the people of Brazil, uh, because Brazil seems in particular to be getting very hard hit right now by this global pandemic of the coronavirus. But uh, because things are getting better in many parts of the world and things are going more back to normal, I'm going to resume the question and answer only on one day a week. For the last two months, I've been doing it on two days a week. So we'll continue on Thursday afternoons at 12 noon. Whenever I'm in town, we're going to do these question and answer sessions. However, I do want you to know that another thing we added during the global pandemic was a daily devotional. That is going to continue. Uh, I don't know for how long we're going to continue doing it, but I do a brief daily devotional. It's usually anywhere from three to five minutes every day. It comes up on the YouTube channel. So if you have a subscription, and especially if you click notifications, you can be notified when it comes. But we're going to continue doing the daily devotion, uh, even though we're coming out of at least uh, the first phase of this global pandemic season here in where I live. Okay, with that said, let me go on to some of the questions here. Jose says, Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 8 through 10, we have been saved by grace and not by works, verses 8 and 9. Exactly so. Verse 10 talks about good works. Are these works to obey God's moral laws to help the needy obey the gospel, your thoughts? Well, I would say that these good works have a broad definition, Jose, not a narrow one. So really just about anything you could think of as being a good work. So to obey God's moral laws, yes, that's a good work. To help the needy, yes, that's a good work. To obey the gospel, yes, that's a good work. So I would give a broad definition to the good works that God has prepared for us as revealed there in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10. And so, yes, I, I think we can believe that that is a broad definition. But remember this. I like what Martin Luther said, and I'm not quoting him precisely. It's a paraphrase of a quote from Luther. Luther said something like this. He said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And, and really, that's true. It's not like our good works add anything to God. We're saved by faith, and the ground of our relationship with God is based on our relationship of trusting love, that is, faith in Him. Now, the good works are important, 
And a life that has been truly touched by Jesus Christ will be marked by good works. But those good works are really not so much for God's benefit, if we want to put it that way, but for the benefit of our neighbor, uh, the person who is our brother or sister in Christ, or the person who does not yet know Jesus Christ, but is in a needy world that needs to come to faith. So yes, uh, good works are important. And I would give that definition in Ephesians chapter two, a broad definition instead of making it a narrow one. Thank you for that, Jose. Agnes says, Hi, Pastor David. If the Nephilim survive the flood, does it mean that they are alive today? Okay, Agnes, let me give you my take on that. And, and let me just go ahead and say that I think that my take on this is a minority view. Uh, most Bible teachers and preachers, I don't think they teach it or explain it the way that I would. So I'm just giving you that warning in advance. But I would explain it like this, Agnes, that the Nephilim did not survive the flood. That when the flood happened, those creatures were wiped out. That's how I would explain it. The Nephilim did not survive the flood. Now, somebody will say, and quite logically so, well, wait a minute. Aren't there mentions of the Nephilim after the flood? Yes, there are. Um, I can't give you the specific chapter and verse, but I do know there are mentions of the Nephilim in some form or another after the flood. Well, what about those? Okay, this is my explanation. Is that those were not actual Nephilim, but large, fearsome creatures, people, that were named in memory of the Nephilim. And sometimes the example I give is this. Before the flood, the Bible says that there were rivers. It mentions the Tigris, the Euphrates. Now, if we believe in a true global flood, that would have so remade the topography of planet Earth that every river would have been changed and reformed. Um, that You would not have the same uh, geography and topography of the earth before the flood as after the flood. Yet, how is it said that there is a Euphrates and a Tigris river after the flood? Because the people after the flood named them in memory of what was before the flood. They looked at a river that was in approximately the same place and had the approximate same appearance as the Euphrates. And they said, that's the Euphrates. But it's not actually the exact same river before the flood and after the flood. They'd say, that's the Tigris. But again, not exactly same before the flood and after the flood. That's my explanation of why there are Nephilim or whatever, uh, the giants, so to speak, after the flood. These are not the literal Nephilim, but those who are uh, Nephilim-like. Um, they would name them in memory of. Okay, again, just a, a strange analogy here. It's like you would say, wow, that guy's like a dinosaur. Um, and, and again, you're not literally meaning he's a dinosaur, but you're saying he has dinosaur-like qualities, even though the dinosaurs died out long before. That's the explanation that I feel most comfortable with. I really don't see other people explaining it that way, but you asked, and so that's my take on it. I hope that's helpful for you, Agnes. Okay, uh, Jimmy says, 
Hi, Pastor. I'm enjoying your teaching on the book of John. Thank you for that. I want to ask you, do you have any teaching or preaching on the book of Revelation? I'm trying to read it, but it is hard, a bit hard, even with commentaries. Okay, Jamie, I do have an audio series through the book of Revelation. I'm going to say it's old. I mean, it's got to be maybe 20 years old. And so, I mean, I there's probably some things I would teach different if I was to teach through the book of Revelation again. Uh, but in the most part, I'm not embarrassed about it, even though there's some things I would correct. If you want the audio of my teaching through Revelation, there's two ways to get it. Number one, go to my website, EnduringWord.com, and look under media, and then look under audio. So you'll find Revelation listed there under the books of the Bible that are available in audio, not in video. The second way you can get it is by a podcast. I believe that both on iTunes and on Google Play, my teaching on every book of the Bible, audio-wise, is available as a podcast on either iTunes or uh, available on Google Play. So that's what I would recommend to you there. Uh, Luis says, a quick question today. I have a friend who received Christ, but after his brother's death, he started to practice his brother's beliefs, Hinduism. What would you recommend me to do besides praying for him? Well, Luis, I, I think you can, as the Holy Spirit would lead you, speak to this friend and um, remind him of his past Christian commitment. Just, just ask him, does he no longer believe these things that he once believed? I think it's okay for you gently in love to speak to your friend. I mean, if he is your friend, and of course I believe that he is, you say that he is, then friends can have these kind of discussions and say, friend, um, I notice now that you're pursuing Hinduism after your brother's death, uh, but before that you were a practicing Christian. What, what's changed? Can you explain this to me? I do think it's fair for you to call him to a real belief and a repentance coming back to a firm decision for Jesus Christ, to focus on Jesus and who he is and what he has done. So, yes, I, I think it is um, good for you to talk to him. And if you could talk to him about anything, talk to him about Jesus himself and the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Look, I'm no expert on Hinduism. I really don't know a lot about it. But I do know this, is that in the system of Hinduism, they have many gods. Well, Jesus specifically said that there's one God. And then, matter of fact, that one God, the triune God, Jesus is God. And so, you know, you can talk to him about the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. For example, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me. Uh, that's a valid thing to speak to them about. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Luis. And sorry to hear about your friend. Um, Jimmy has also a question about the millennium reign with Christ. What will we be doing? If the millennial reign is on this earth, are we going to be staying in our current homes or countries? All right, Jimmy, let me explain to you my understanding. This is a uh, subject that is of some controversy among Christians. 
there are Christians who have definitely different opinions about this. So I don't want to act for a moment like every Christian would agree with what I'm going to tell you right now. There are many people who love the Lord and believe his word, yet come to some different answers to the question that you ask. But I'll give you my answer. Here, I would just simply say that in the millennium reign of Jesus Christ, we will rule and reign with him in our resurrection bodies. So we will not be in these same bodies. There will be people on the earth who live in bodies just like we have now. Those will be the people on the earth who remain, they're alive, I should say, when Jesus returns in glory to the earth and who make it through the judgment of the nations described in Matthew chapter 25. That remaining group of people will live on the earth for that thousand-year reign, and we, in our resurrection bodies, will help Jesus rule and reign. And I would say, look, I, I can't prove this biblically. It's just the sense I have from combining all the biblical data on this that we will have access to both heaven and the millennial earth. I mean, many of us believe that angels have that kind of access right now. An angel can be in heaven and an angel can be on the earth. Well, I, I believe we will have similar access between heaven and earth and that we will be there to help Jesus rule and reign as sort of his administrators, his helpers, his civil servants, his workers. That will be part of our duty during this millennium. We'll get to have the best job at all, working for Jesus, administering his righteous rule upon the millennial earth. So that's how I would explain it there, Jimmy. Here's a question from City Light Hamburg. Hello, Janos. Nice to hear from you. Uh, he says, hey, David, what's your favorite teaching that you've ever heard or read? What's your favorite teaching by Pastor Chuck Smith Greetings from the old world. Well, thank you for that, City Light Hamburg. Hey, anybody, if you're in the Hamburg area and looking for a good church, I highly recommend my brothers and sisters there at City Light Hamburg. You can just look it up online. Uh, but my friend, Pastor Janos there, is a good man and doing a good work there. And he asked a great question. What's a favorite teaching I've ever heard or read? I, I don't think I can answer that question. Because um, I've obviously read and heard so many teachings. Some of them stick out vividly in my mind, uh, but I don't know if I would specifically say that they're a favorite of mine. Um, I remember some uh, sermons that I've read by Charles Spurgeon, one that he uh preached called Both Sides of the Shield. What a great sermon that was. Another one that he preached called Mocking the King. Oh, what a sermon that was. Uh, from other memorable messages, I, I sure remember a message preached by Damien Kyle that I heard once at a pastor's conference called The Problems of Good Kings. Oh, what an impactful message that was upon me and upon many people. Uh, I remember some vivid testimonies uh, delivered as messages, but filled with a lot of testimony. My dear friend Sandy Adams delivered such a one, talking about how uh, what a gift it is to be in the pastoral ministry and explaining his story that way. 
Um, but when it comes to Pastor Chuck Smith, one particular message that he delivered that really I think about a lot is a message he delivered titled Directed Service. Th this message that he preached, Directed Service, just talks about what a difference it makes to work for the Lord when your service is truly directed by Jesus. What a difference. And in it, he shares a good amount of his own testimony, what it was like for him to serve God without really having a service directed by God, and what a difference it was when his service was directed by God. So in any regard, those are some of the things that come to mind. But, you know, I, I don't even know that there are so many great messages I've heard, uh, so many great things I've read through the years that uh, I'm a blessed man to have all those things. So thank you, Janos. Thanks for your question. Um, Layla says, Hi, Pastor David. To what extent should we apply the teachings of the Old Testament in our walk with God? Okay, uh, Layla, it's very interesting. Um, mostly, we look to the Old Testament for principles of obedience. There is much in the Old Testament law that has to do, number one, with laws that were meant to separate Israel from the surrounding nations. For example, many of the dietary laws, the laws of keeping kosher, really had that attention, intention, I should say. The, the idea was to separate Israel from the nations. And so uh, in specific those laws don't apply to us. And the New Testament tells us plainly, for example, we're not required to eat a kosher diet, but there still is a sense that we should make a separation from the world, at least in some ways. Israel wasn't to be separated from the nations in every way, but in some ways. And so that's a principle for us to think about. We find in principle the laws of the Old Testament show us the heart of God and the mind of God, and that heart of God and mind of God is the same. So maybe not in detail do we keep many of the Old Testament laws, but in principle, we do. Here's another one. Um, we find other laws in the Old Testament that are clearly repeated in the New Testament. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit sexual immorality. Look, those are plainly stated again in the New Testament. There's no doubt about those. So if a law is clearly stated again, repeated in the New Testament, that says, well, okay, we, we understand that's for today. But then there's also principles from the Old Testament law. Um, the law was given for several purposes. It was given to us to... Um, uh, to declare to us the heart and the mind of God. It was given to us to restrict human sin. It was given to Israel, I should say specifically, to preserve them as a people so that they wouldn't get assimilated into the broader culture. But we, we also recognize that the laws give us guardrails, um, not specific laws sometimes, but guardrails for our walk with God. So that's the best way I, I would explain it to you there, um, Lila. I hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, Jimmy asks, hi, Pastor. The last question, is Satan living in Turkey, according to Revelations, the letter of the Church of Pergamum? It says that the devil lived there. Well, what Jimmy's referring to is in the letters to 
the seven churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus dictated to those churches, you'll find that in Revelations chapter two and three. In those chapters in the book of Revelation, you'll find that Jesus dictated these letters to the seven churches and to the church of Pergamum, he makes a reference to them living in the place where Satan dwells. Look, this is what I would just take from that, Jimmy, is that he's not trying to say that that's the only place Satan dwells. Um, He is in some ways the God of this earth. He's the God of the now age, the present age. And so, no, I, I wouldn't give Satan an exclusive location other than the sense just seems to be there in the letter that Jesus dictated to the church at Pergamum that there was an especially strong presence of Satan and his work there in the city of Pergamum. But uh, Satan isn't restricted to any particular place on earth. And I think it would even be going too far to say that that would be like his headquarters or something like that. So that's the best way I would answer that, Jimmy. Uh, I say to myself, says, um, odd request, can you show a copy of your printed commentaries or at least tell me the font size? I'd like to purchase a few. Okay, let me look on the shelves behind me and see what I got here. Um, Okay. Here is one of my print commentaries in Genesis. And uh, I don't know if you can tell the font size. It is 11 point Adobe Garamond Pro font. Um, I think it's of a reasonable size. It's certainly not small print. Uh, I think it's large enough to be able to. It's 11 point Adobe Garamond font print. Uh, These are my print commentaries. You can get them on Amazon. You can buy them through the website, EnduringWord.com. I don't have a print commentary on every book of the Bible because those have to be proofread first uh, so that they're just cleaner before going into print. Uh, Just today, I'm uploading the files for the publication of the commentary to look like this, except it'll be on the book of Proverbs. And that should be available in a few weeks when we get it back from the uh, the printer. So uh, the print commentaries, I want to make it clear, the same content is on the website. But there are people who just prefer to have it in print rather than reading it from a screen of some kind. But the content really isn't any different. I, I will say this as well. Um, we haven't really started publicizing it through our social media. But you can get all of my available print commentaries in Kindle form. That's already existing and has been that way for a long time. That's through Amazon. But now you can also get them in iBooks form through the Apple Bookstore, whatever they call that, the Apple Bookstore, I guess is what they call it. So it's now available as iBooks through uh, books, Apple Books, I guess they call it. All right, uh, back to the um, side here. Ruth said precepts.org has Revelation Bible studies. Yes. Also, you can go to blueletterbible.org. There's a great website that collects about as many web resources as you can find on a particular book of the Bible, preceptsaustin.com. Or maybe it's .org. I don't know. Just search for Precepts Austin. And that is a website that's run by a wonderful man, a retired medical doctor who just has this great ministry of compiling available internet Bible resources 
and making links to them on his website. That is a tremendous uh, website. So precepts.org, as Ruth, hi, Ruth, says, uh, preceptsaustin.com uh, or .org, uh, blueletterbible.com. Christian asks, hi, Pastor David, will Jesus be our judge and advocate? I'm wondering how that will work. But Christian, I would answer it this way. Jesus is either our judge or our advocate, depending on the setting of the court. So when we are being accused before God the Father, Jesus is our advocate, protecting us, our attorney, so to speak, protecting us against the accusations of Satan. But Jesus is the judge, both on the judgment of the earth, Jesus said in the gospel, I believe it's in John chapter 10. I'm not sure. I know it's in the gospel of John. Jesus said that the father has committed all judgment to the son. When people come before God on the great white throne judgment, when they come before God as people who have rejected Jesus Christ and his great sacrifice that he made, it will be Jesus himself who made that sacrifice, who sits as their judge. That'll be a heavy thing. But Jesus also has a separate judgment for his people. Remember what we read about in one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians about the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. That's using the original language there. The Bema seat of Christ, where believers will be judged, and it'll be the judgment seat of Christ. Our works, now that isn't a judgment of salvation but a judgment of how we've lived our life uh, before the Lord and for his kingdom, I should say. So it depends on the setting of the court, so to speak. He's our advocate when Satan accuses us before the courtroom, so to speak, of God the Father. Uh, but he also sits as judge at the great white throne judgment and at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, I hope that helps you a little bit. Shiloh. Church in Oceanside says, awesome teaching. Thank you so much. I love your commentary and teaching. I praise God for you. You inspired me to do our own. Well, I'm happy to hear that. I'm, I hope God has his blessing on that, Shiloh Church in Oceanside. So blessings to you. Hello, Rose. Hi, back to you. Uh, Village Chapel. Hey, I don't know if that's Chuck. Probably so. Hey, Chuck, can you explain the difference between the infilling of the Holy Spirit at salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Okay, this is a great question. Explaining the difference between the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Again, I always like to make it clear, this is an issue upon which Christians disagree. So you'll find Christians who love the Lord and believe their Bibles, who have a different opinion or a different approach to this issue than I do, but, but I'll give you my answer here. When somebody is born again by God's Spirit, they receive the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a believer and not have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And there's different ways that the Bible describes that work. Sometimes it's talking about having the Holy Spirit uh, in you. There's a great teaching. Uh, we got a question earlier about some of my favorite teachings from Pastor Chuck Smith. 
he does a great teaching on the idea of our relationship with the Holy Spirit being explained by three prepositions in Greek and in English. The Holy Spirit being with us to convict us of sin and bring us to Christ. The Holy Spirit being in us when we're born again. And then the Holy Spirit being upon us uh, in an overflowing sense. That's the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So make it clear. Everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is has the Holy Spirit. Sometimes Christians use terminology that sounds like this. Well, they're not spirit-filled, or they are spirit-filled. Okay, if you're going to talk like that, you need to more carefully define your terms because every Christian has the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you're not a believer. You don't belong to him. Okay, that's the one aspect of it. So there's a sense in which everyone receives the Holy Spirit. Now, there is also a sense, though, in which the Bible describes subsequent works of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. Sometimes the subsequent work is talked about as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the subsequent work is talked about the filling of the Spirit. But there's a sense in which this describes an ongoing experience with the Holy Spirit. Um, maybe that ongoing experience has an initial um, demonstration, and people would talk about that a bit, their experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or their filling of the Holy Spirit. But the important thing to see is they're not receiving something that they didn't have before, but they're receiving something that they had before in greater measure, in, in greater gifting, so to speak. So is there a difference? Well, I believe that it is possible and desirable for Christians to have an ongoing experience with the Holy Spirit. As it says in Ephesians, where it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, the sense in the ancient Greek grammar is more accurately, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're supposed to do. Be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. I look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit not so much as a singular event, more so as a condition. Not were you baptized with the Holy Spirit, but are you baptized with the Holy Spirit? Again, thinking about it more as a condition than a singular event. All that to say this. We can make the mistake of saying, oh, well, there's people who are Christians, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. That's a mistake. But it's also a mistake to think, hey, man, I'm saved. I've had all the experience of the Holy Spirit God ever wants for me to have or I never need to seek him for. That's a mistake as well. We receive the Holy Spirit when we believe, and God wants us to have ongoing experience with and filling in the Holy Spirit. That's my understanding. Hope that's helpful for you there, Pastor Chuck. Okay, a few more questions here. We're getting on here in time. Ed asks the questions. Thank you for all you've done. My question how can I be sure that the feelings and desires I have 
to do a specific project task for a ministry is coming from God? Well, Ed, that's a great question. Let me give you a few things to think about with this. Um, number one, obviously, and I I assume you've already done this, but I don't want to neglect to say it just because it's obvious. What you need to pray. And as part of your prayers, you need to pray and ask God to give you clear vision regarding this. And especially vision that is not clouded, so to speak, by um, by selfish motives, by wrong approaches, but rather vision that is uh, clearly seeing what God would want you to do. So prayer, and prayer against blind spots, prayers against presumption, um, just really yielding it to the Lord in prayer. That's number one. And Again, I know you're probably already doing that, but I just don't want it to go unsaid that that's important. And then there's also the gift of talking to people who really know us and praying with them about our questions. Now, this isn't an absolute answer because sometimes people who even know us can be wrong in their estimation about what we do or where we're going, whatever. But um, usually it's a pretty good place to start. So um, asking people who know us well. But then there's another sense of simply launching out and seeing if God's hand is upon it. Now, if we've really checked our motives, checked our hearts, checked our game, so to speak, if we've done those things and... Uh, we feel a peace in the Holy Spirit about going forth with it. And it turns out later that we're wrong. Look, God's still going to honor it. God's not going to say, oh, my disgraceful child. Look, he'll show us that we're wrong, but he'll do it in love. He'll do it in his grace. So there's a place for sometimes just stepping out and getting a sense both spiritually and practically is God's hand upon this? Okay, uh, 11 points, cool, I will be purchasing good. Rose says, I'm 15 years old and just started reading my Bible this month. I'm keeping up with your John sermons and I love them, thank you. My boyfriend is having a problem with waiting till marriage. He respects my decision, but it's holding him back from coming closer to God. Well, Rose, God bless you. Let me encourage you. Keep reading your Bible, keep doing the basics of the Christian life, and keep firm in your commitment to obey God in these areas of, uh, for example, waiting until marriage. I think that's important for you, and it's important for your boyfriend. Listen, uh, love doesn't push us to disobey God. If we really love somebody, we're going to want them to obey God just as much as we should want to obey God. So stay strong in that. I'm going to say a prayer for you today about that, Rose, and God bless you. I pray that God continues to help you to overcome in this area and to walk rightly with him. All right. I think I'm just going to... Um, uh, that uh, Levy asks, is there rap music in heaven? Because I like listening to a lot of Christian rap a.k.a. lyrical theology. Levy, let me give you an absolute answer on that. I don't know. 
Um, I don't know the different musical styles of heaven. We know that there will be music in heaven because there are some references to music in heaven in the Bible, but singing and such. But uh, we don't know anything about the styles of music in heaven. I'm sure there will be some surprises for us in heaven. Um, and let me just go one other question here. Um, MJ Galliante says, uh, one minute after we die, does our spirit go straight to heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ, or does it stay and sleep in the grave until judgment day? Thanks. No, it goes directly to be with the Lord. Remember what Paul said. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in paradise. Uh, so there's no doubt that the Bible clearly teaches against the idea of soul sleep. Now, we started with the question today, does the Old Testament deny the afterlife? And the answer to that question is plainly, well, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, but the New Testament gives us clear revelation. Um, those who deny or those who teach the idea of what we call soul sleep, usually they're relying on Old Testament passages to do it. And, and we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't make a foundation of Old Testament passages to be a doctrine of anything having to do with the afterlife, because as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, life and immortality have come to light through Jesus Christ and the gospel. Okay, I'm going to leave it off here, even though I know there's still a few good, great questions. We're going to try to make note of those questions and perhaps address them in a future question and answer session. But for now, I just want to say thank you Thank you for being a part of our question and answer session today. Join me again next Thursday at the same time, 12 noon Pacific time, whatever that is in your particular time zone. Join me. And I'm so glad that you could join. Click subscribe, like, whatever, all those things that people are supposed to do. I don't know why I feel impressed. Everybody says that. I, look, if you want to subscribe, subscribe. If you don't want to subscribe, it doesn't hurt my feelings. But I would just simply say, uh, I'm grateful for those who pray for the work that we do here with the Bible commentary, with the Bible resources that we try to get out, not just in English, but in many languages. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. I'm glad you could join me today. And I look forward to the next time next week when we can do this together. Thank you and God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.